0: Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies and TV shows with history. Today we're going to be looking at the Netflix original series that most people simply call Dahmer, or the full official title, Dahmer. Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. As the title suggests, The 10-episode miniseries from creators Ian Brennan and Ryan Murphy tells the story of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who murdered 17 people between 1978 and 1991. It's probably obvious, but just to clarify, we will be talking about murder, cannibalism, and all sorts of horrific things that Jeffrey Dahmer did in this episode. And I know that can be triggering for some people, so if you'd rather not listen to this episode, no worries, I'll catch you in the next one. To help us separate fact from fiction in the series, I'm excited to be joined by Robin Maharaj, a freelance writer and author of the book called Grilling Dahmer, The Interrogation of the Milwaukee Cannibal. Robin's book was written with Detective Patrick Kennedy, who was the one locked in an interrogation room with Dahmer as the killer explained how he did the horrible things that he did. Sadly, Detective Kennedy passed away in 2013, but it was Robin who turned his notes into the book. Before we bring Robin on the line, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Unlike what we see in the series, they did perform an autopsy on Jeffrey Dahmer's brain. Number two. Jeffrey Dahmer killed a bunch of animals before he killed any people. Number three, although his nickname was the Milwaukee Cannibal, not all of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were killed in Milwaukee. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere through episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right. Now it's time to connect with Robin Maharaj about the historical accuracy of Dahmer. The series kicks off by showing how Jeffrey Dahmer was caught in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the year 1991. And according to the first episode, Dahmer picks up a man named Tracy Edwards at a bar. They go back to his place where Dahmer ends up pulling a knife after Tracy starts to notice some red flags going off. And then he seizes an opportunity to escape, Tracy, that is. And he manages to make his way out of Dahmer's apartment, runs into a police car. He tracks down the the two cops. And then they return to Dahmer's apartment with Tracy Edwards there. And while doing a search of Dahmer's apartment, they find photographs of dismembered bodies. I think one of the cops is like, wait a minute, this is real. Yeah. How well did the series do showing how Jeffrey Dahmer was ultimately arrested?
1: Well, I, you know, I think it's just a, an exact moment that is made for cinema. Like you can kind of imagine it um, like how I sort of see it. It sort of depends on where you pick it up. Like, is it, uh, you know, Edwards escaping and, and kind of getting out in the hallway, getting outside and then flagging down these cops? Or is it just, you know, him flagging down the cops? But wherever it is you start. And I think that the series did it beautifully. Um, You know, it's very much, you know, him talking to the cops. I just want these handcuffs off. I don't want to cause a lot of trouble. I just want to be able to get on with it. And it was just sort of the chance of them looking at it and saying, well, we don't have a key. We need, to get the guy who has the key to get these unlocked. And uh, they had to really, in tr- truth, they had to really kind of talk him into coming back with them because he said, this guy is crazy. And, you know, I just, I don't want to go back there. It smells bad, you know. Understandably and, so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, that scene of them sort of just standing there outside of the apartment apartment with uh, Tracy kind of behind them. And, you know, he's sort of looking away and, and not really wanting to make eye contact with Dahmer. Dahmer's standing there and he's been drinking a lot. So he's really kind of unbalanced. And, you know, like so suddenly he's opened the door to these two uh, uniform police officers. Um, I think they handled it beautifully. Like, I think they just did it. Um, and as I said, it's a moment made for cinema. There's just a lot going on there and everything that would just, you could you could just picture it happening. And it really, I think it really was perfectly done in terms of how it really occurred. Uh, They're saying to him, you know, this guy just wants his handcuffs on, let us come in. We'll just, we won't take much of your time. Uh, But as soon as they walk through that threshold is really when, you know, sort of the Dahmer story unfolds.
0: Yeah, yeah. The first thing that caught my attention was that he went back with them. I was like, why would they take him back? I didn't even, I mean, I know they kind of mentioned it briefly in the series talking about the key, but it sounds like that was what they really were after was the key to unlock it. Not necessarily they were questioning why why this guy was handcuffed.
1: Yeah. You kind of wonder why didn't they just leave him in the car, you know, and then they go up and say, well, you know, you handcuffed a car earlier. But anyways, they brought him up there and uh, maybe they just thought, you know, we'll just deal with this right at the door and then kind of everyone can get on with their lives again. But yeah, they walk through that door. And of course, they notice that scent right away, that smell. And, you know, I think a lot of police officers say once you've smelled it, you never forget it. And uh, but yeah, at first they're just kind of, you know, like this is kind of a strange guy, kind of a strange place. But they do see these photographs. And I remember the detective uh, in real life saying, you know, or thinking to himself, like, where did this guy get pictures from the morgue? (laughs) You know, like, how did he find pictures of the morgue? And it wasn't until he realized this is the same room that we're standing in that he, you know suddenly said something and like grab him.
0: Oh, okay. So I was noticing like that being in that apartment, like this looks familiar in the picture. Okay. Right, right. That sofa
1: pattern (laughs) where this arm, this dismembered arm is stretched out. Like, you know, this this is right here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. In the second episode of the series, it kind of starts to go back in the timeline. It starts to show some of Dahmer's early life. And there are scenes of his mother and father arguing with each other right in front of a young Jeffrey at that point we see his mother's taking a lot of prescription pills. His father leaves the house for days at a time. And when he is home, one of the hobbies that interests Jeff is when he and his father pick up roadkill and experiment on the dead animals, dissecting them and so on. How well did the series do showing Jeffrey Dahmer's early life?
1: Um, again, I think this was really well done. I, I didn't really know, like I sort of, had read somewhere, you know, maybe last year that they were going to cover uh, sort of Dahmer in high school, and that they were going to sort of then show, you know, sort of how he made his way to Milwaukee and then really began his crime spree. But um, so I was a little bit, uh, you know, kind of surprised to see that they had footage of, of a young Jeff Dahmer, like a young kid. But uh, I think it was important that they did that, because I think that a lot of people kind of look back on that time, as they do, I think, any kind of serial killer, you know, they kind of want to go back as far and just kind of see, like, what what was going on there that may have led to this kind of behavior you know, in the future. Um, And uh, yeah, I think the interest in roadkill, uh, the way they portrayed his relationship with his dad. Um, I remember Kennedy telling me that he found Lionel to be very strange, like they actually did meet their paths crossed in Milwaukee when Stalmer was arrested. And uh, he said, you know, he was kind of a strange guy, you know, and he thought, because of course, Kennedy had two sons of his own, you know, if I had a young son like that, who was sort of interested in this or showing an interest in this, I kind of would Ask some questions and maybe find out a little bit about why there was this interest. But um, as Dahmer said, you know, later on when he was being interrogated, you know, I was interested in the insides of dead things. That was sort of how he portrayed it. And it began at this young age. Um, I think it's important. And I know that they didn't say this in the series, which was good. And that was that Dahmer never killed any animals. Like he would find dead animals, but he never actually um, like found, you know, found a live animal and tortured it to death. It was all dead animals already. Things that he would find on the side of a road or, or in the woods near where he lived, and uh, yeah, his dad also recalled a memory. Um, and I think they sort of showed it, although they didn't really, they didn't really sort of portray it as much as they could have, I suppose. And that is that uh, he remembers Jeff as a young boy being interested. They were cleaning, kind of cleaning up some rocks and bones of like little dead animals that were on the property, and he remembered the sound. Jeff liking the sound of these bones hitting this sort of tin bucket that they were collecting it in. And uh, he really liked the sound of that. And so that's how he kind of got interested in doing that because he kind of liked putting them in the bucket. And, uh, but the interest in, in chemicals and, and all of the sort of the science side of it, um, because of Lionel's background and because of his own interest and his own career as a chemist, chemist um, he thought he had a little protege on his hands. Uh, he, you know, he thought this was something he should encourage Um, So he thought, you know, like, oh, well, I've got somebody who's interested in this. I will sort of answer his questions if he's asking me, you know, how how, what kind of uh, chemicals do you need to take the skin off of a bone? (laughs) You know, other parents might be saying, why do you want to know that? Whereas in Lionel's case, he sort of thought, you know, like, oh, okay, well, you know, I will teach him this. I will show him and I will teach him and kind of get his interest, you know, you know, it was to solve his interest in all of these kind of things. Um, the interest, uh, the, the relationship between uh, the parents, between Lionel and Joyce, um, I mean, it was that, you know, nowadays we sort of look at it in terms of quality time. Like, But I think in their case, you know, they, when he was home and they were together as a family, all Jeff really remembers was them fighting, having lots and lots of fights. And they would fight in front of him or they would say, go to your room. You we know we're we have to talk about something here that's serious. Um, so he spent a lot of time on his own. There was kind of an, a gap between him and his brother. There was only the two boys. And so, you know, I think sent to his room, he didn't have, you know, he fantasized a lot. He had a lot of time on his hands and, and you know, kind of a weird interest in sort of the inside of bed things. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, people are sort of like, I've been watching some of the forums of, of things about the show and a lot of them say, oh, you know, if only he had had bad, had, had better parents, <laughs> things like that kind of, because maybe they think that the series is trying to show that there was some. I don't know, fault there somehow, or if Mm. maybe he had had different parents, it wouldn't have turned out the way that it did. But I think from what I've read and from what I understand, they actually were pretty good parents. Like they just didn't get along, you know, and they did fight a lot in front of him. And and as you mentioned, and as they indicated in the series, uh, like Lionel was gone a lot. Um, He was a very, very hardworking guy um, and he spent a lot of time away from home. Um, I think the time that he was there, he was sort of half spending time with his sons and then half, you know, fighting with his wife. Um, And then Joyce, I mean, it was very, it's very well documented that she had issues with mental illness. So um, I was a little bit surprised because I didn't really know or remember that she had taken a lot of prescription drugs during her pregnancy. Uh, But I do remember reading a lot of stories, hearing a lot about when she would be at home you know, she wasn't, you know, Jeff had this thing about it being abandoned, you know, and it's like, well, you know, he had two parents, like, why would he feel like that? For the most part of his growing up years. I mean, it wasn't until he was late in high school that they actually separated and, and you know, each went their own way. Um, but, you know, it's like, well, if she was medicated or if she was in a, in a psychiatric hospital or she was sleeping a lot because of all the pills she was taking, that's a form of abandonment. You know, it's not the same as just like I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. It's she was there, but how present was she? You know, so I think, again, he spent a lot of yeah. time on his own and a lot of time thinking about things and, and a lot of time sort of wondering, why is my Why don't my parents get along? Um, he always would say at a very young age, like, I'm never getting married.
0: Yeah. No, that that makes sense. And you, you, you definitely see a lot of that fighting and the impression that I got, um, there was one, one scene there where we do see a Joyce doing something on the bed, like with pills and they're, and they're fighting there. And then right in front of Jeffrey, you know, a young Jeffrey Lionel gets up and walks out of the house and be like, I'll be back in. I don't remember the timeline. He said, you know, a week or two weeks or something like that and the impression i got was he just couldn't wait to get out of the house i mean it may have been legitimately for work yeah. he didn't really talk much about work in 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 that episode but right yeah the impression was he just didn't he didn't like being at right
1: home. home was not a happy place i don't think you know for for, for any of them really like i think because yeah. of some of her illness you know illness and her anger and, and other things too you know like there's you know i think Can't blame one parent over another. I think there was issues all the way through, but uh, yeah, I I don't think that he really particularly liked being at home because of the relationship he had with Joyce. Lionel, I mean,
0: that makes sense. Uh, In the third episode of the series, we see Jeffrey Dahmer's first murder, and the way it's depicted in the series, uh, he picks up a hitchhiker named Stephen invites him to come back to his house for a few beers, some weed, we're going to lift some weights. And then he offers to drive Steven to this Pegasus concert that he's wanting to go to and back at the house. And you mentioned the abandonment issues. That's actually kind of brought up there. They Steven says, Oh, we should get going to the concert. And he's like, no, let's just hang out a little bit more. He doesn't want to be, it sounds like he doesn't want to be abandoned and he ends up killing Steven with a dumbbell from his weight set. Is that how Dahmer's first murder really happened?
1: I think very much. I think very much so. I think from what they pieced together, from what Dahmer told them, um, that that's very much the way it happened. Um, It was all about like, I don't think it was an intentional murder. I don't think when Dahmer saw this young guy on the side of the road and uh, pulled over because he was hitchhiking uh, and said, you know, hey, where are you going? Maybe i can give you a ride. Um, I don't think his idea was at all about, you know, I'm going to kill this guy at the end of the night. Um, I think it was really about, he was lonely. He, at this point, he was uh, had been spending a lot of time at the house by himself. Um, his mother had taken off to uh, Wisconsin with his younger brother. His dad had already moved out of the house and on with his new girlfriend and spending a lot of time with her and away from the home. And uh, so Jeff was there by himself. And so he saw this young guy who he thought was attractive looking and said, you know, hey, I'd kind of like to hang out with them." And really kind of lured him with every sort of possibility of drinking, maybe some cannabis, uh, you know, we'll lift some weights and watch some TV, whatever. And I'll even take you to the concert you want to go to. So, I mean, how could the guy say no? I mean, it was just like a perfect package there. So, yeah. So he went back there and, uh, you know, they hung around and talked and just, you know, kind of did whatever they were going to do. And yeah, the the time Stephen was kind of like ready to go, Uh, Jeff was just like, you know, please don't go. Uh, You know, we can hang out a little bit longer. It won't take us that long to get to where you need to go. And Stephen is saying, look, I've got friends who are waiting for me. I I really want to go. And it was him trying to prevent him from leaving. And the weights that that is, in fact, how it happened. He had weights kind of lying around the living room. He was uh, doing that. I think he was lifting weights after he graduated from high school and drinking a lot. And so this happened to be just there. It was a convenient uh tool, a uh, weapon that he could use to keep the guy to keep the guy there.
0: So it was more, yeah, it was, sounds like it was more just more convenience there. Yes. And yeah. And trying to keep him from leaving. Exactly. Yeah. You you mentioned um the the mother and father there. And some one of the impressions I got from that episode was they both left the house thinking that the other parent would be there with Jeff. Yeah. Uh, we see, you know, Jeff said returning to the house and then he's kind of surprised. He finds out there's no one else there. Jeff was alone in this house for well over a month. I think they say something like five or six weeks. And and that was, at least uh, according to the series, that's basically how he was able to murder Stephen without anybody noticing. Right. Yeah, Is that true?
1: That is true. And in fact, when I met with um, because I had read this story, of course, and um, I had this theory that when I met with Kennedy back in 2013, uh, sorry, yeah, 2013, um, I wanted to kind of float it by him and see what he thought. And he sort of like looked back. And he said, actually, that's, that's actually a really good theory. Um, what I had proposed was that, um, like, I, I at that point in the marriage, like, they were just so angry with each other, particularly Joyce with Lionel, because uh, not only did she feel abandoned, but he had already moved on with another woman. And so she was just like, they weren't speaking to each other. And so I think the scene of uh, Jeff's dad, Lionel, already, having left the house, the family house, and the mom there packing up the car with the younger son, get in. Um, and I think she actually said to Jeff, you know, call your dad, tell him that we've left and that he can come home now. I think she actually sort of told him, instructed him, suggested to him, you know, call your dad now because we're going. And that he purposely didn't call his dad because it kind of gave him a little bit of freedom. You know, he had this whole big house to himself. Um, they had he had food in the fridge at that point. Um, he had a bar, you know, there was drinks. So he was obviously unable to go and get drinks. I mean, he could go and get beer if he wanted. He had a car. Uh, But I think he just sort of was, you know, like looking at this as an opportunity, Um, you know, so I think he purposely didn't call his dad. And his dad, again, was sort of moving on with his new life and just happened to come by and visit and say, hey, where's mom? Where's Dave? And he said, oh, well, they left. Oh, well, how long ago did they, you know, so it all kind of unfolded at that point. But I think had Lionel known that Joyce was gone, I think he probably would have come back to the house because he was living in a motel at that point.
0: Which, I mean, if they didn't have a good relationship and they didn't really want to talk, Joyce and Lionel, I mean, like, if they didn't really want to talk to each other, I could see how, like, Joyce would kind of relay the message through the kids. Like, no, you, okay, Jeff, you call your dad and tell him, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You hear that kind of stuff happen a lot with relationships are not going well.
1: Exactly. You know? And I mean, oh. I, well, I, proposed, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't when I proposed it that. to Kennedy, he kind of said, you know, I could totally see Jeff doing that. You know, he was sort of, he could be quiet. He could be, you know, only give information when it sort of suited him, be a little on the cagey side. I mean, he had been hiding a drinking problem. You know, I, I don't know how well he was hiding it from his parents, but I mean, they didn't seem to know that he had been drinking or was drinking as much as he was at that point. Because don't forget, this is just after he had graduated from high school, but he had started started drinking way earlier than that. So, you know, I, I guess they I guess when she left and I'm thinking, you know, if he, she said something to him like I'll call your dad that uh, she just assumed that he he would, you know, cuz Lionel and Jeff had a good relationship and, you know, if he she's not there, hmm. then Lionel probably would've been more inclined to want to come home.
0: Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earnin. If we go back to the series in the fourth episode, it covers a lot of time. It doesn't really specify if it's weeks, months, or years, but it starts with Jeff's dad, Lionel, and this new stepmom, Sherry, enrolling Jeff in Ohio State. While there, Jeff has terrible GPA. I, I, I noted it down. It's like 0. 0.45 GPA, like terrible GPA, <laughs> gets expelled. Uh, they Lionel and, and Sherry just don't seem to really know what to do with Jeff, and so he decides, the dad decides uh, to send him to the Army. We don't see a lot of time of jeff in the army but we do find out that he gets honorably discharged uh and after he returns home he has even more troubles he loses a job at a meat market after exposing himself at the state fair and he gets a job at a blood plasma center i think while there there was actually they actually mentioned while he's applying for the job mentioned that he was a like a medic in the army and that's how he gets that job how well did the series do showing some of these key points in dahmer's life
1: Um, They did a good job. I think one of the things that they sort of did very well, you know, and I guess guess this is sort of the actor, you know, and as well as the direction given to him. But, uh, you know, Jeff, from what I gathered, you know, he had no real ambition. He had no motivation. He didn't seem to have Mm. any desire, you know, to, oh, I want to go off to school and become this, you know, like he didn't sort of have anything like he sort of was just sort of drifting. Um, So, you know, that's very much true. It was all you know, him being aimless and his dad and Sherry kind of just pushing him, you know. And, and one of the things that I kind of it really kind of, I realized, I guess, watching the series, I mean, I sort of knew this, but it just really pointed it out very well, was that, you know, Jeff really didn't, I mean, it wasn't that they forced these things on him per se, but he just went along with, you know, oh, we've decided that, you know, you should go mm. off to Ohio State. So we did all of this, you know, signing you up, doing all this, What? oh, okay, I'll go there. And he essentially drank himself out of college. You know, that was the problem. Like he didn't really attend classes. That's why he had such a low GPA. You know, they flunked <laughs> him out because after a semester, they were just like, you're not coming to class and, and uh, you know, it's. Don't seem to have any drive to to change your behavior at all. So that didn't work out. So then his parents, uh, you know, his um, dad and his stepmom, I think they once said I saw it in an interview that that well maybe the army will kind of make a man out of them and give him some discipline, give him some direction. So they thought this is a good opportunity. So they signed, you know, took him down and rolled him, signed him up for the army. And again, Jeff kind of just, oh, okay, yeah, let's just do it. And I think for him, it was very much, you know, the the path of least resistance. He didn't want to get in big fights with his dad, but particularly. Um, and I mean, they knew at this point that it was, you know, he was drinking a lot, and that drinking was his problem. So, you know, they were encouraging him to do all sorts of things. You, know, you got to stop drinking. You got to go to meetings. You got to get therapy. Um, him along with the grandma, go to church. You know, this will help you to get this drinking problem behind you, and then you can move on with your life. You know, you can get moving and forward and actually maybe figure out what you want to do with your life. But yeah, I think that they captured it really, really well. Uh, There was one thing that I don't remember them talking about at all, and and maybe it was for good reason. And that was that um, when he left the army, because he was in Germany at that point when he Left and was disar- or sorry was honorably discharged. They said to him, "Where do you want to go in the states? We will fly you wherever you want to go." And he said, "Florida." He ended up in Florida for a little while. So he was down there for I'm not really sure how long, you know, maybe not quite a year, but um, he was working at a sab- sandwich shop and he was for um, a sub shop, I guess, and he was delivering sandwiches and that was kind of his job for a while. But again, you know, just all of his money went to drinking, and so eventually he was evicted from where he was living, and he was on the beach for a while like living on a beach for a while. And then some rats kind of freaked him out one that time and he had no money. Um, so he called his dad at that point, And he said, you know, I'm back in the States and I'm living in Florida. And his dad said, why Florida? And he said, well, it's warm down here. <laughs> so I just figured it would be easier to live. And uh, he said, can you send me some money? And uh, Do- uh, Dahmer's dad said, well, we are not going to send you money, but we will send you a plane ticket, come back to Ohio. So that's what he ended up doing. So he got on a plane, came back to Ohio. And I remember reading somewhere Lionel saying as soon as he saw them, saw him at the airport when they went to meet him, uh, he could see his eyes were glazed over and that he'd already been drinking. You know, so he said it wasn't even the middle of the day and he's already been drinking. So I get that. I guess it was around this point that they had him in Ohio. You know, college had not worked out the army had not worked out so they said you know what you need a fresh start you should go to milwaukee live with grandma give her a hand you know help her around the house and do things with her and also you know get on with whatever it is you're going to do with your life you know maybe a fresh start is what you need so that's kind of how that storyline took off but yeah they they i don't think they really talked about his time in, in florida and maybe it was just because it was you know he can't cover everything
0: yeah yeah it was pretty brief there was a point there that i, I remember him calling um his his dad Lionel on the phone almost kind of begging yeah. to come home okay. yeah. and at least as far as as portrayed in the series it seems like Lionel was real hesitant for that but it sounds like maybe there was maybe it wasn't necessarily that case if it was actually Lionel's uh send, sending a ticket be like yeah, okay come back home yeah that,
1: well I think he figured you know if we send money you know he's just gonna just use it all to drink he's not gonna use it to pay rent or it. whatever so we'll get another call in three weeks saying I need more money so I think they figured it'd be easier to kind of yeah handle him a little bit or manage Jeff if he was, you know, at least closer to home. But I think once he got back and they realized, like, what is, you know, like, he's just, he's a burnout, you know, like, he doesn't have the drive that clearly the dad had. Um, so they were just kind of, I think, a bit let loose ends. They didn't know what to do, you know. Here is this young guy and he just, he had no, whatever they'd say to him, like, what do you want to do? Like, what is, you see, what do you see yourself doing? He didn't have any ideas. He didn't know what he wanted to do, but he was just, I mean, he was an alcoholic and that was all he wanted to do was just have money to drink.
0: Yeah. There is another murder that we see feature rather prominently in episode four, and that's when uh, Dahmer gets kicked out of a local bathhouse for drugging people. Mm -hmm. And so he rents this expensive hotel room. He takes another man that he met at a bar there, and then he kind of accidentally drugs himself instead of he hands the wrong drink. But then he wakes up and finds that apparently he had killed the man in the hotel room. So it seems like another kind of accidental death. Did that really happen in the way that we see it in the series?
1: Yeah, it did happen. Uh, yeah, he had done kicked out of these, ho- uh, uh, bath houses and, uh, he was told not to come back anymore. And, but he met this guy and he was really, really attracted to him. Um, for whatever reason, I don't remember. He just didn't want to take him back to his grandmother's house. Maybe he wanted to have more time with this, this uh, fellow, but anyways, they ended up at this hotel and, um, yeah, they were sort of drinking and partying and uh, at some point Dahmer passed out and he remembers waking up that morning uh, and he said, you know, this guy was lying there. He was cold. He had bruises all over him. He had looked like he'd been beaten up. Uh, Dahmer himself, you know, his arms were sore. He had bruises on his arms. Um, he had blacked out and he didn't remember, but he said to the cops, I must have killed him. Like, I must have killed him. I don't remember doing it, but I must have killed him. So he ended up um, staying another day and night. At, or sorry, staying another day at the hotel. Um, he went out and got a suitcase and brought it back, a very large suitcase. Brought it back and took the body out in this bag. And uh, apparently, he had said to he. He ended up taking it to his grandmother's house in a taxi. And when he rolled it out to the front of the hotel, and the cab showed up, he was helping him. The cabbie was helping him put it into the trunk, and he said to him, "Man, what do you have in here? A dead body?" And Jeff said, "Yeah." <laughs> but I mean, of course, the guy thought he was joking. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So he brought. Well,
0: yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: So he brought that body back to his grandmother wow. where he dismembered it and got rid of it.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think we do. We don't see that part with the with the guy helping him yeah. uh, into the taxi, but we do see the suitcase part fitting in there. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the grandmother. We do see in episode five. We see Jeff living with her. Her name's Catherine. Um, and while he's there, his murders continue. He brings people back to his grandma's house, he drugs them, he he kills them there. Um there's at one point it kind of switched. the series kind of switches back and forth between the interrogation and between the things happening and um Evan Peters' version of Jeffrey Dahmer even mentions to the police that he thinks his grandma knew that there was something going on but she didn't want to dig too deep into it. He as he says it because of his lifestyle and the impression that I got is watching this, you know, the grandma seems to be very deeply religious. She doesn't really want to admit that Jeff is gay, so she ignores all the guys that he keeps bringing over. I also got the impression that she probably knew there was something going on just from the acting that was, that was there, that she probably knew something was going on, but she probably just slept, thought that he was sleeping with these guys and not murdering them. Is it accurate to walk away from the series that that with that impression of Jeffrey Dahmer's time living with his grandmother, that she kind of didn't really want to know what was going on? probably didn't even anticipate that it was as bad as it was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that wherever she could, uh, just for her own sake, probably, um, you know, sort of turned a bit of a blind eye. Um, you know, I think she suspected a lot, as you're sort of are saying. Uh, but yeah, she just kind of didn't really want to face it. She didn't want to, um, to believe it, I think. And um, I mean, I think that the grand, I, I felt really bad <laughs> for the grandmother, actually. And it was really, really well done. Uh, With the series, I thought the woman, uh, I think her name is Michael, learned, uh, played the grandmother, and she was just fabulous. Um, Because what she kept doing, and I think this is true of Catherine, uh, was she kind of kept saying, well, you know, uh, you got to stop drinking, Jeff. You know, you really have to come back to church. You should come to church with me on Sunday. Um, both she and Lionel would sort of have this belief that if only he would meet the right girl, <laughs> and of course him being gay, this wasn't going to happen. But they, you know, really, really felt that that was going to be part of the answer to Jeff being better. You know, to to maybe it would be enough to make him motivated to quit drinking. That he would feel like, oh, I have somebody in my life that I want to be with. But they were all convinced that if he just met the right woman, <laughs> he would be okay you know, he would stop having all these troubles. Um, as far as what was going on in her house, like, you know, there were strange noises, there were strange odors and, and uh, you know, smells that were coming up from her basement in her crawl space. So she was constantly asking Jeff, like, what is going on down there? Like, what is happening? And he would just blame it on his taxidermy uh, hobby. And um, these men that were kind of coming in and out, um, I think he was able to, I mean, he was really a a con artist, right? Like, I mean, he was able to convince a lot of people of a lot of things. Uh, maybe it was just because he was very um, sort of uh, boring almost. Like he was so bland that people would sort of say, well, you know, like he's just, he's just a drab guy. So, uh, you know, with, he's not going to be doing anything out of the ordinary. And um, so they kind of, um, you know, it was just sort of, as I said, I think particularly with her sort of turned a blind eye to it. And I mean, even when they would talk about his arrests and some of this trouble with the police, I think she kind of downplayed it a little bit. Uh, Maybe he said, oh, well, you know, it was, uh, was not my fault? And she would want to believe that about her grandson, you know? So, um, but yeah, I think that, uh, I think it was really, really well done. And I think it did show, um, it gave an opportunity to sort of show show his temper. Because sometimes he would get very frustrated with her um, when she would uh, go in. And apparently, like she did throw away that mannequin that he had. And he got very upset with her about that. Uh, But it also allowed us to sort of see the Dahmer character, if you will, with some tenderness, you know, like he's I just there was a couple of a couple of scenes of him sitting there having dinner with her on a TV tray and they're watching game shows. You know, and I mean, yes, I mean, yes, he's a serial killer and yeah. whatever, but I mean, I think he genuinely loved his grandmother. I think he genuinely loved his family. So don't you know, for yeah. what that's worth. But but that one scene though, um, like, I think what had happened, and I, I think that they did want to involve the grandmother a little bit more, that scene with the young man who's there, and she's like, I'm not going to go away. I want to kind of, that, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what had happened was um, she had heard some noises in the basement, and she came down to kind of investigate this one evening, and a man that uh, Dahmer had brought home and had drugged, uh, was stumbling around and he was naked. And so he kind of ran into Catherine. I think he was trying to get upstairs and she was kind of coming downstairs. So she was, of course, frightened and thought they had an intruder in the house. Um, So she's like, Jeff, Jeff, call the police. So he managed to get this guy back downstairs dressed and outside. He said, yes, grandma, I've taken care of it, but I will call the police because she insisted. So he did call the police. While they were waiting for the police, Jeff took this guy down the street and just left him on a bus stop, like kind of passed over, you know, passed out and just sort of leaning over, got back to the house and was there when the police came to take this report of this intruder that happened to be in their basement.
0: Oh, wow. okay, yeah, that is different. I think in the series, they show that he uh, the the grandmother stays there all night after he gets drugged and they do take him to the bus stop. But then, you know, after the cops come and. Because of him, uh, his name, I think, was Ron Flowers in the, in the series. Um, he, he talks to the nurse and like, oh, there's this crazy guy that drugged me. And she's like, you need to talk to the cops. Yeah. So it sounds like that was a, a little little uh, made up for the Yeah, series. I think it was
1: sort of some creative license. I think it was also maybe build a bit of tension, you know, in terms of like there was sort of this, that, that yeah. they should have been aware that there were these warning signs. And there were, there were definitely warning signs. But I think they kind of played that one up a little bit.
0: Well, in episode six of the series, uh, we see Jeff meeting an aspiring model named Tony Hughes at a bar. And this is the first time that we see Jeff starting to put drugs into the drink, like we've seen happen before. And then he stops. The two seem to hang out quite often. Jeff claims to like Tony a lot. And later when uh, Lionel and Sherry visit, Jeff talks about how things are turning around for him. He got a promotion at work. He's quit drinking alone. He has a new friend he says he's happy and there seems to be something different about tony and after i was i was watching this uh, for the first time my my friend actually pointed out she was watching it with me and um, that they dedicated an entire episode to setting up tony while earlier in the series we saw multiple victims uh, particularly you know jeff's grandma's house they just he's almost just seeing bodies being drugged you know we don't really know anything about them but there seems to be something different the series kind of focuses on there being something different about tony as well Why do you think this series focused more on Tony Hughes than some of the other victims? Uh,
1: Well, a couple of things, I guess, you know, there wouldn't have been enough time really to kind of give the same kind of focus for every single victim um, because there were so many. Right. Um, And I think with Tony, um, you know, he's he's a sympathetic character, you know, because of his hearing impairment. And um, and I think that it's also been said about him that he had a great personality. He was lots of fun. Um, always sort of like the center of attention in any party that he happened to be at. And um, so I think that he was a great character that they could work with. Um, they Again, here's another area where they kind of blended things a little bit. Um, you know, I, when they talked to uh, Dom or about Tony, he didn't really kind of express any kind of like, oh, this was a good friend of mine or I really remember it. He's like, oh yeah, the deaf guy. He, he remembers that about him. Um, the whole idea of him spending a lot of time that did happen, but was with another victim. So I think here they kind of, they kind of meshed a victim with a storyline, um, which was of Jeff actually meeting somebody who he did spend quite a bit of time with. It was actually over the course of a weekend. This guy had come in, come in from out of town and Jeff met him at the bus stop and said, hey, you know, I just got off the bus. I'm here. I just want to see some of the sights of Milwaukee. And Jeff's like, hey, I've lived here all my life. I'll show you around. And then it ended up being where they went out for coffee and they had a meal together. And uh, Jeff brought him back to his uh, his apartment and they watched a movie and then they would went out shopping. And it was for Jeff, it was actually like a real relationship. Right. Uh, he said, you know, that was really the closest thing I've ever had to a relationship when he was ta- talking to the police afterwards. And um, but he said, of course, by the end of the weekend, this guy had to go back home. He had to go back to his life, wherever it was that he had come from, um, get back to his job and, and uh, you know, people that were would miss him. And uh, he said, that's when I killed him. So he, when that whole idea of him leaving again, that whole idea of being abandoned, uh, that was too much. And so Jeff ended up killing him and ending his life. Um, so the, the Tony character is real. There really was a, a character or a, I should say a person that that character is based on. But again, they kind of meshed the stories. And I think the reason that they did that was because, I mean, it, was, it gave them some really interesting things to do. Like there was a whole bunch of that, of that episode I remember that was quiet. You know, so they got it gave them a chance to do some yeah. really interesting, creative things, and, and and again, I think it was because of the vulnerability of that particular victim. Um, people really, I think, were yeah. impacted by that. I, I had a lot of people who told me, or when I would talk about it with them, that they they really felt something for that episode. Partly because it sort of showed yeah. a side of Jeff who you couldn't see, like he really, really did want a relationship. I mean, um, he he really did want to have somebody in his life, a companion, but he just was not willing to let that person go. Um, and he wanted to be, had that person right. be completely compliant. He wanted that person to just do whatever it was that he wanted to do. Um, so he really needed a victim that was like, and that was again where he was showing uh, in, uh, necessarily this episode, but later on him uh, drilling, uh, the brains or the skulls of these victims Mm -hmm. because he wanted to kind of have a zombie boyfriend. You know, he wanted somebody he wouldn't argue with him or confront him or question him, or he could just leave and do whatever he wanted to do and come back. And this person would be there. uh, No questions asked that he could do whatever he wanted to do sexually with the body or the person. Um, But um, so, yeah, so I think on a lot of levels, um, you know, people really felt for that Tony character.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely did. you, you Pointing out with, you know, him, him being deaf, it definitely did add a different element to that episode. It kind of uh, like with them writing the notes back and forth yeah. together, you know, yeah. it added a, a whole another dimension. Yeah.
1: It. And that part that, is true because he definitely. does remember, he does remember recalling that to the police that, oh yeah, that guy, that deaf guy, I remember we had to write out notes to each other. So that did happen. But I think his experience with Tony was like a night, like, I think that they were together for a night and that he ended up killing him later on that night.
0: Okay. Uh, going back to the series in episode number seven, there's uh, somebody we haven't really talked about, but we do see throughout the series, uh, Glenda Cleveland. And episode seven really focuses on her involvement in the story a lot. According to the series, she's Jeffrey Dahmer's neighbor. And we see her throughout because she calls the cops on him all the time. Whenever there's something that's that's weird going on, she's hearing weird things, she's smelling things. The cops just pretty much ignore her and she has to endure the noises, the smells, uh, even screams sometimes, you know, coming from Dahmer's apartment. How well did the series do showing Glenda Cleveland's storyline?
1: Um, this is another one where they kind of blended two people to make one. And, um, you know, and I mean, it's, it's not that it was done in error. It wasn't that anyone sort of, uh, you know, neglected to do their research. I think it was just for the sake of simplicity that they kind of made two people Mm -hmm. in real life, one person. Um, There was a a couple actually that lived right across the hall from Jeff. Um, It's a couple named Pamela and Vernell Bass. I think Pamela has since passed away, but, um, and uh, they befriended Jeff. I mean, he lived right across the hall from them. So they kind of would run into him a lot, you know, and when he first moved in, um, I actually met Pamela in 2013 because she was um, featured at a a panel discussion about a Dahmer film that I happened to go down. And that's in fact when I met, and interviewed Patrick Kennedy uh, when we were going to start working on this book together. Um, But yeah, so I met her and she said, you know, like it really struck her when he, she first saw that he had moved in because she said 99% of the people that lived there were uh, black people or African-American people or people of color. And he was like the sole white guy that lived there. So she said, you know, he kind of stood out a little bit. And the fact that he was right across the hall, they would have these little chit chats. I mean, I wouldn't say they were very friendly, but they kind of got to know him a little bit. Um, And she was the neighbor that would complain about the smells, the sounds, the sounds and the the strange things, the noises that were coming like in the middle of the night. Um, I don't know if she was necessarily calling the police every time, but she was certainly uh, contacting the caretaker. So she was complaining pretty regularly to the caretaker of building and saying, can't you do something about it? You know, and the caretaker would come and talk to him and say, like, what is it that's going on in your apartment? And he would always have a story. Oh, some meat went bad. Oh, I had a fish tank and the fish died. I'm taking care of it. So he would always be um, sort of deflective of it, but he'd always have a re- ready excuse as a reasonable answer as to why his apartment had this horrible odor coming from it um the glenda cleveland person um was or is a real person was a real person and uh, she actually lived in the building i think it was right next door to where jeff was um and she was the neighbor oh, Okay. She, so
0: not even in the same building not even
1: in the same building no um glenda actually yeah she lived okay. in this other building but it was right there and i mean i think they kind of came to back and forth like i think she knew people from that building and they all kind of knew her they'd all kind of hang around in the front of the building in the summertime, you know, and in fact, Pam, Pamela would say sometimes that she and Jeff would actually share a beer or have a cup of coffee together on the front stoop of their building. So that's that kind of how, and our cigarette, you know, so they would kind of hang around a little bit. Um, And she said, you know, he was quiet and shy, but always polite. Uh, But yeah, she would complain to him. And again, he'd always have these stories. So back to Glenda, she's the one that lived next door and um, she's the person that when um, the young boy comes out of the apartment, out of Dahmer's apartment building, she sees him on the street and he is naked and he is stumbling around and um, he um, seems to be a little bit incoherent. And so she goes over to him and says, are you okay? What happened? Get somebody to get like a windbreaker and they put that around him. She's the one that gets onto the uh, phone and calls the police and says, you know, we've got this young guy down here. Looks like someone beat him up. Can you come down? Um, So she was there. She was the neighbor that was um, talking with the police when Jeff came up with the beer and like, what's going on? And, and uh, they're saying, well, there's young man, you know, he seems to be in trouble. Oh no, no. That's my boyfriend. Uh, He lives with me. You know, I could take upstairs, show, show him, show you his ID. Um, And there, she's the one that's saying, no, no, no. Like, you know, he's a boy. It's not a male. He doesn't live in this building. Um, And she's sort of fighting with the police and they're trying to listen to Dahmer and they're sort of, Trying to silence her. And so eventually, of course, as the uh, series portrays, they do eventually believe Dahmer and say, okay, let's go upstairs. Show us, you know, whatever you have of his that proves that he is with you. And he doesn't find, of course, ID, but he finds some photographs that he had taken earlier in the evening of this young boy drinking beer, toasting, looking very happy and cheerful. So they say, okay, clearly this is your boyfriend. So they left him there. Um, Glenda is also the person who called the police later on that night. To find out what happened, because you know, as far as she knew, they took him upstairs, but she didn't know what happened after that. So she was saying, like, "Are you sure that that is a a, a man?" <laughs> because she goes, "I'm I'm pretty sure that it's actually like a young boy, and then he goes to school with my niece and her friend." And the cop is again just, you know, "Ma'am, ma'am, you know, we can't get involved in all of the domestic things. Uh, you know, we've taken care of it. Don't worry, don't worry, we've taken care of it." So, so that Glenda. A Cleveland woman was very outspoken. Um, so she and she was very much call, she was the one calling the police. But the Pam Bass who they don't really talk about they don't give that that person a character but I think that that's where that comes from. And Pam is actually the one that did eat a sandwich that Jeff prepared for her. Um, but I don't know I mean I don't know what happened. I don't know whether it was really a chicken sandwich or what it was, um, because he might have been annoyed with her uh, because she would phone the caretaker and complain about him. It might have just been a gesture of being neighborly. I, I don't know if anyone really knows.
0: Wow. So she what she did actually eat it, because I think in the series that uh, Jeff hands Glenda the, the sandwich and she's like, I'm not going to eat that. No. Because she knows like the smells and all that kind of stuff. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: They kind of really pressed that scene. And I don't think it was anything like that. I think one time um, he happened to come out. She was just sitting outside of their building, you know, one nice evening or whatever. And he happened to have two sandwiches and he just said, hey, I me you a sandwich. And I think they just ate it. And uh, I wasn't until much later that she was kind of wondering about it, but sure. she said it tasted okay to her.
0: Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, there is another uh, plot point in episode seven. That's when uh, Jesse Jackson comes into town. He's uh, fighting civil right- for civil rights. And in the dialogue, Jackson says that Dahmer's case is now, quote here, a, a metaphor for the social ills that plague our nation. Mm-hmm. And he points out the bad policing, underserved communities, uh, the low value assigned to young black and brown men, especially if they happen to be gay. Was the series correct to suggest that Jesse Jackson became involved for those reasons?
1: Uh, well, it, it's kind of hard because I was thinking about this uh, question and, you know, I sort of, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to question Jesse Jackson's motivations. I mean, I think it was sort of a, I mean, it was a, a perfect crime, if you will, to lay out all of those things that he wanted to say about all of those things that you just mentioned. So, I mean, it was sort of a custom made thing for him to go and have that platform to say, you know, this just, just gives you an example of, you know, white privilege and um, you know, how come these people weren't being listened to? Um, you know, I mean, he was a spokesman, but I think he was also an important person that came to that community at a time when they really needed some leadership. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to hear that someone was listening to them finally. Um, but, well, you know, I think what it, what, one of the things that struck me about that episode that I thought was kind of interesting, because of course, this movie or this series, I should say, was made in, you know, what, 2020, maybe 2021. And of course, Since then, in the 30 years since Dahmer, you know, there's been a lot of examples of racial injustice and a lot of examples of, you know, uh, police taking their frustrations or whatever it is, their uh, racial prejudice out on um, African-American people. So, I mean, there was a couple of things that they quoted Jesse Jackson as saying that I think, you know, I mean, it was very appropriate. Don't think he actually said it at the time, but it sort of felt like, OK, we have this whole history, you know, and it was very profound right. because it's kind of like, gee, in 30 years, how far have we really come?
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And I I would I wouldn't have put that with that, uh, like realizing how much time has passed and things that he would have actually said. But it is a, I mean, it is a great point and I, I think it's it's a sad reality. We haven't come that far that they're still, you know, having that conversation in there. That's
1: right. And I know like even, you know, Kennedy, like, I mean, I talked about him with him about this at length, you know, and I mean, like he was the first to admit that, yeah, a lot of mistakes were made. Um, he pointed to the training that was given to cops and sort of how they did screening and all of that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, he stayed with the police for 10 more years after the Dahmer case, like he was there until 2001. Um, then he retired from, uh, Milwaukee Police Department. And he actually went back to school and became a criminologist and wanted to teach. And he it did, it didn't in fact teach for uh, a two-year university. So he was actually very committed to training new people going into law enforcement with his ideas and using the Dahmer case as an example of sort of, you know, like, mm-hmm. why did they listen to the white guy who was telling them this story? Was it because he looked like them? Because he sounded like them? Because he was re- uh, reasonably detached and kind of calm? You know why did they sort of feel it was so uh, easy to brush these other people off? Why didn't they listen to what they were, you know, he was saying? Um, so you know, he was the first to admit that there were some things, errors made that Dahmer could have been caught a lot earlier. Had people been paying a little bit more attention? Had they sort of done the things that they should have done? Like after they returned that boy to Dahmer's apartment, you know, they're they're in the cop car. And I mean, there is a tape of this where they're kind of joking around and, you know, talking about having to, you know, delouse or whatever, because they've just been in this apartment uh, block and this particular apartment building where they've returned the gay lover back to his boyfriend. And um, he said, you know, like, why didn't they run Jeffrey Dahmer's name? Why were they so busy making jokes and, you know, having a good laugh? Why didn't they run his name? Because then they would have seen that he had actually a prior record with molestation with a young person. So, you know, he said those are the kinds of things that, of course, hindsight, you know, but he really wanted to use uh, other cases, but some cases to do with the Dahmer or some instances with the Dahmer case to use it as a teaching method for the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think we even do see a little bit, it wasn't in the car, but we do do see the two cops as they're leaving Dahmer's apartment after taking the boy back up, they're like, oh, I need to go take a shower or something like that now. Yeah, yeah. And I think Dahmer uses the excuse of, oh, it's just gay stuff, you know? And using that is, because it seems like he knows that the cops will leave him alone. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. He kind, of, he kind of described it as they just wanted to get out of there as soon as they possibly could, as soon as he heard that, you know. And I mean, of course, now things are different, you know, but at, this, at that time, uh, you know, the, the attitude towards, sure. uh, you know, what they would consider to be a gay, homosexual, domestic incident, you know, I think it would be much different now. We would hope. <laughs>
0: We would, yeah, we would hope so. If we go back into the series, we have talked about it a little bit, but in episode eight, it's actually entitled Lionel. So it's named after Jeff's father. Um, and he's trying to grapple with everything, the realization of what his son is. And he's um, he ends up blaming things on his ex-wife, the pills that she took during the pregnancy with Jeff, uh, the fact that she wasn't around much. Uh, doesn't really like to focus on the fact that he wasn't around very much. Um, and there's even a line uh, where Jeff mentions the taxidermy. And as soon as Jeff brings it up, Lionel's there with him. He immediately denies it, saying, oh, this is none of this is my fault. I didn't do this. Don't don't blame me for this. Uh, And the impression that I got was Lionel Dahmer's really seemed he felt guilty about his son being a murderer. But he's also simultaneously trying to cast that blame off on somebody else. Is that a pretty accurate takeaway?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, You know, and I, I, you know, I don't have children, so it's hard for me to kind of comment. But I mean, I imagine if I had kids and I had somebody, you know, a child who had done what Dahmer had done, you know, you have this sort of um, this horror of you know uh, wanting to blame something or someone, uh, but also feeling that guilt. You know, like absolutely having that guilt. Um, And I mean, in terms of that whole taxidermy thing and kind of that interest in and roadkill and whatever, I mean, you know, he can't he can't deny that he. Encouraged that interest you know in in it, um, but you know it's hard to know whether or not that really how, how much that really contributed to it. I do know that once Dom uh, was you know in custody and he was seen like psychiatrists and they kind of proposed the idea of well you know maybe it was because he was sort of doing all these strange things in this little shed that they had on the property, which is where he kept all of his chemicals and jars of things with you know these things that were um, taking the fur off the bones um, and they said you know when most Young men that age are, you know, interested in dating and going out there and being social. He was sort of like in this little space doing these very strange things at at a time when he was maybe going through puberty. And so they kind of tried to make this connection of, you know, maybe these things matched and that the idea of um, something, the viscera of something dead, sexually stimulated him, you know. And I remember, um, Jeff, or uh, sorry, Lionel kind of glommed onto that. Like he kind of really glommed onto that in terms of, okay, well, Mm. I might have encouraged him to do this, but it was maybe the timing of it. Maybe we shouldn't have carried it off into his teenage years, which is really when he was doing that. I think that was kind of one of his pastimes uh, was actually just sort of experimenting with these these strange things. But it was because he was very isolated. You know, he was very, um, I mean, when I say isolated, I don't mean they kept him isolated. I mean, he was just a very lonely, uh, shy guy. He was very introverted. And that's also actually how Lionel was. like I remember seeing him in an interview and him saying that when he was Jeff's age, you know, he didn't have a lot of friends. He didn't. He found it very hard to make friends. He found it hard to be in social situations. Um, Maybe Joyce was kind of the same way, too. They don't really kind of say too much about how she was in terms of social social situations. But I know certainly Lionel, and I think he thought that Jeff took after him. But he said, you know, as he got older and kind of got into university and and got out into the world, you know, he learned how to socialize. He learned by taking interest in other people and asking them questions. That's how you form dialogues and bonds with people. And he just hoped that Jeff would get to that, that he would mature to that point where he would be like his dad, maybe shy and introverted and, and kind of a loner as a young person, but that he would kind of grow out of that stage. And to go back to the part about blaming, you know, I mean, I kind of, I, either I forgot or I didn't really remember um, that much about how many drugs she was taking during the pregnancy. I mean, they talked about that a lot in the series and and maybe it's a way to sort of say, well, you know, maybe that did contribute to uh, the way he was. Uh, one of the things that they sort of turned around in the series, it was actually, um, lionel who wanted to have jeff's brain examined after he was killed in prison and it was joyce who didn't want to have that happen so they ended up doing an autopsy of his brain i think in the series they say that it never happened but in the in the uh, actual truth it did happen and they
0: found Dahmer's brain to be completely healthy wow yeah yeah i think they mentioned him him, uh being incinerated at the very end there in in the series yeah something as you as you were um talking about lionel there it Kind of struck me that him almost try- wanting to cast off that blame or, you know, to have it not be his fault, you know, th- that side from being a parent it also uh, kind of ties with another theme that we see throughout that we talked about earlier, where he's uh, having, you know, Jeff go to Ohio State and go to the army and he find find a girlfriend, find somebody to fix this for you instead of trying to kind of make or have him take on the responsibility of doing it himself for his own son. Like He wants to try to find somebody else to to fix it for him, and so he wasn't able to do that, and so now when he finds this, well, obviously it's not my fault, right? Yes, um, yeah. These people didn't do it. That kind of that kind of yeah, aspect.
1: yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of get the feeling from I, I did read Lionel's book, you know, and uh, the one that he wrote, and they talked about him writing in the in the uh, series, um, you know, and I, I always it was always struck me like I he really genuinely loved his sons. He done genuinely loved Jeff. But I think he got very frustrated with Jeff. And I think that, you know, he um, would get irritated by him. And, and obviously the drinking was a big issue. He just really felt that that was that was sort of the, the ills of all of his troubles and all of his problems. And, and to a, a great deal it was. You know, I mean, I think that Jeff, you know, wouldn't be such a, have been such a washout had he been able to get a handle on this drinking problem. But uh, yeah, you, you're you right. Like, I think if when things were good, you know, he was really pleased and happy. And when Jeff would visit and he'd be in a good mood, he remembers very vividly when they first uh, saw Jeff after he returned from the army. I think he came back for a visit sort of during his time in the army. And uh, they were so impressed, you know, like he was all buff and built and, you know, he's, he was eating really well and he wasn't drinking. And uh, he just they said, you know, we've never seen him look so healthy, you know. And then he went back and then, you know, however long it was later, he's back in the States and, you know, he's living on a beach. And he's obviously been drinking again. So and when they talk to him about it, like what happened in the army? Well, you know, he was doing really well in the beginning. He was really, really kind of keeping it up and and being very disciplined. Uh, But then there were bars in Germany so that he started to frequent them. And then there we go. He just starts drinking all the time. And that just sort of seemed to be a pattern. And so, yeah, I think Lionel was as much as he loved his son, I think he was very frustrated with his son. And I don't know. I don't know whether he really knew how to fix him or deal with him. Because there's also the thing of, too, like maybe 30 years, if if it was happening now or had happened now, like you know, if they would have encouraged him to go to therapy or to see somebody, see a psychologist or somebody to help you. At that time, it was kind of like, you know, let's just have these other things that will maybe fix him.
0: Well, if we go back to the series in episode number nine. We get some perspective from the victims' families because we see them giving their impact statements in court. How well do you think the series did showing things from their point of view?
1: Um, I think they did it really well. Uh, that one, I think, for me, was a little bit hard because at, at that point, like I think since I saw the series, uh, the director, Ryan Murphy, has come out to say, you know, he actually did contact the families. Um, he said apparently he'd reached out to 20 different family members and that, um, You know, he didn't have a he didn't get a response from anybody. Prior to that, though, uh, I saw the episode and I was still under the impression because the news that I had read at that point was that the family felt that they'd been left out. They had said that, oh, no one contacted us and we didn't have a chance to participate or be a part of it. So that episode for me was hard because I was under that impression that they, you know, that this was sort of done, just done without their knowledge per se. And I remember particularly the woman who just sort of lashes out at Jeff in court. She kind of comes towards the table and they have to sort of shut everything down and protect him and get him out of the courtroom. And uh, she's, you know, like she wants to kill him and she's calling him the devil. Um, that woman was interviewed not too long ago and she said it was the most surreal thing to see herself, you know, in that scene, which, you know, took place a long, mm-hmm. long time ago, um, but to sort of see it acted out in something that's, you know, was essentially for entertainment. Um, so, yeah, the whole idea, I mean, it was hard. Um, it was really hard to sort of hear um, those victims and having to, because, you know, it's like one thing to lose a family member to to uh, homicide. And I actually do know what that's like because I had a, an uncle who was killed in Trinidad about 10 years ago. Um, but to have that person be the victim of someone as at that, even at that early stage, that notorious, you know, the, the, everybody in the world knew Jeffrey Dahmer's name and to have your family member associated with that I mean it, it just must have been horrible and awful and uh, and I mean to have to relive it you know like every I mean Dahmer just doesn't go away you know he's sort of always you know like every five years or so I say there sort of seems to be something new about five years ago there was a film that came out about him in high school and um, you know it, it just documentaries and every, everything that comes out about him um, and it, just, it must just be awful that they can never kind of turn that off You know, so I feel very badly, but I I do think that they handled it well. Like I think it was an interesting episode.
0: The the final episode, episode number ten. In that one, we see Jeffrey being baptized. He's in prison. He's being baptized at the same time that another serial killer, John Wayne Gacy, is put to death. And then another inmate, Christopher Scarver, ends up killing Dahmer and saying that he was told to do that by God. And then at the End of the whole series, we see Glenda Cleveland talking about how the city tore down the apartment complex. She's pushing for a memorial to Dahmer's victims, and then there's text at the very end of the series that says there was no park, no memorial. It was was ever built for Dahmer's seventeen victims. Is that all true?
1: Uh, yes, uh, that is true. The in fact that uh, he was beaten to death by uh, by that fellow in prison, a uh, gentleman Christ- Christian Scarver, uh, Christopher Scarver, sorry, and. Um, He was there actually with another inmate. They were in the showers, which I think is how they portrayed it in in the series. Um, It was a weight, which actually was a coincidence because the very first murder weapon that Dahmer used was actually a bar from a weight set. And that was what was used to beat Dahmer in prison. Um, I don't know whether they really touched on it at all. But when they did the autopsy afterwards um, on his body and the foreigner gave his report, he said there was no defensive wounds on Dahmer. The other Utello who had been killed that day, he had bruises all over his arm because he was trying to block these blows and Dahmer didn't have anything on him. So he basically allowed that guy to kill him, which I think they kind of hinted at. I think they kind of showed it that way that he was basically beaten, then beaten down to the ground. And then just the guy just kept beating on him. Uh, But that was very, you know, I mean, the, the police all thought that was quite. Interesting that Dahmer kind of allowed himself to be killed like that. As far as the the memorial, yeah, the, I mean it is true that the uh, city tore the building down. Uh, there was a wealthy person in Milwaukee who I think uh, took all the contents, and they did kind of get get rid of it. I think it was all incinerated. There has been talk. There's, you know, there's this idea of having a park or a memorial for all of the victims, which I think in theory, is a wonderful idea. I think that those victims do deserve to be recognized and, and remembered. But there's always this danger that it's going to become a place for people who are so-called fans of Jeffrey Dahmer to accumulate and that it's going to be more yeah. about Dahmer than it's going to be about the victims. And do they really want in Milwaukee for there to be a place that is kind of recognized as, well, these are where all these crimes took, or a lot of these crimes, not all of the crimes, but a lot of these crimes took place. So there's this really fine line. You know, I think that a lot of people think that is as lovely as a tribute you know, would be and should be, that they should have something, because it sounds awful. It sounds awful that there's nothing for the victims of, of uh, Dahmer. But at the same time, you could see how easily it would be a place for uh, sightseers, onlookers, people who really follow true crime to just come and congregate there. Um, in fact, one of the things that Pat Kennedy's widow, Patricia Kennedy, because Kennedy and I didn't actually get to work on this book together. Um, Like he and I met in uh, 2013 and we had an interview because I was interviewing him for an article about Dahmer. That's kind of how we met. And Kennedy said, oh, well, you know, I've got all these notes and things, reports and whatever that I would love to do something with. I just kind of have them in a desk drawer. I take them out every so often, work on it. But I really need someone to give me a hand with this. And I'd actually done that kind of work previously. So I offered to help him. I said, well, I'll help you shape it into a manuscript. Well, five days after we met and had this interview and dinner, um, he passed away. He had a heart attack and died. So I did my article and then his widow and I got, she kept in touch quite a bit after that. Um, and she just said, you know, you did a nice job on this article. I, you know, I think you should just do whatever you can with those notes. Because she said, I'm a nurse. She said, is this going to go back in his desk drawer? I'm not going to do anything with it. So she said, and I wanted Patrick's story to be told. So I was very much in favor of doing something yes. with it. But she told me that, you know, years and years uh, later, after like 25 years after Dahmer, she was actually in a gondola in Venice. And the fellow was guide was saying to him, oh, I can tell you're from America. And uh, she, he said, where do you live? And she said, um, Milwaukee. And he said, ah, Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing for a lot of people. That's the first thing wow. they think of. So. And Milwaukee is, you know, it's a fair-sized city, but it's not a huge place. And to have this constant reminder, this this constant thing about Jeffrey Dahmer, it just must be so awful for so many of the people that live there. So, as um, sad as it is that there is no tribute, I kind of understand why.
0: Yeah, I could say, especially what you were saying before, where you know that if his story keeps coming up every few years, that's just going to be another a set of people that are going to want to go there because of Dahmer not because of the victims.
1: Right. Well, and especially now after sort of seeing like, I, you know, I don't know if you've been following this, any of this, Dan, but with this series, like there's all these you know, uh, people talking about it and, oh, he's so cute and, oh, he's so charming and and it's almost like they're kind of glamorizing mm. him, romanticizing him and I just think that, you know, that must be yeah. really awful for the victims but then what does that do for those people who, have, you know, they've, they've kind of meshed the actor with, the you know, the, the person, Jeffrey Dahmer and it's now a character and I think people, you know, people dressing up for Halloween as him, right? So I kind of worry and would wonder what would go yeah. on at a, at a memorial for the victims when really, you know, so much of the interest. I think that those that would go out would be people that are there for Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer.
0: I know you kind of talked about the the victim side. I know there have been a lot of reactions to the series from the legal side, the the victim's families or the gay community who have reacted to the series. It's clear that this story has affected a lot of people. Do you have any thoughts about people's reactions to the Netflix series?
1: Um, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I really, I, I totally understand it, you know, and I, I kind of go, I kind of go into this. Um, with the idea that, you know, there must be some people who may never just never want to hear Jeffrey Dahmer's name ever again, you know, and, uh, and it just kind of keeps coming back and coming back. And um, so whether it's a book or a movie or a documentary, I think it is still an important story to tell. Um, so, you know, as much as I know there's backlash and, you know, there's been a lot of people from various communities who've really kind of come out against this As sort of saying, you know, like this is just kind of uh, glorifying it or glamorizing it in a in a really bad way. Like I remember when Netflix first kind of put it out there, they actually had that it was like an LG, uh, LGBTQ, Uh, show, you know, like that was sort of how they, they labeled it, you know, and I guess they got backlash right away, uh which I was glad. And they said, you know, this is not the representation we're looking for here, you know? And uh, so I can definitely see how there, there has been some flashback or uh, backlash to that. Um, But I think it's really important. You know, I think it's, it's an important story to tell because it deals with things, even though it is a long time ago, it deals with issues like loneliness and bullying and isolation and those are all things that really, res- you know, it resonates It still resonates today. Um, and I think there are things that we can learn, you know, learn about a story like that. And, uh, and a lot of people have studied the Dahmer story as they study other serial killers with the idea of, is there anything we can do to prevent the next Jeffrey Dahmer or the next serial killer? So, so you know, as I mean, I just sort of say to people, you know, if you're not interested or if you find it offensive or upsetting, just, you know, don't watch it. Um, it's hard though. Cause I mean, it sort of seemed to be, especially when it first came out, it seemed to be absolutely everywhere. Everyone was talking about it, but I know, you know, other people are kind of like, mm, I kind of watched it a little bit of it. And it's like, I don't want to see anymore, you know, cause they know it's a true story and they, they, they realize that, you know, this is just going to be too upsetting.
0: Understandable. But like you're saying, there's things we can learn from it. I, I think uh, one of the big kind of takeaways I took from this, from the series overall was yeah, like w- with law enforcement, how they just allowed a lot of things to happen, um, that If they had done things like you were talking about, you know, the, the the cops in the car, like actually run Dahmer's name, if they had done things, then there might not have been as many victims or, you know, they might've been able to stop things sooner if they had If they had done things the way they should have done things. That's right.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, it was an interesting dichotomy there where, you know, and they talk about, you know, he was photographing this young boy, you know, and he was in trouble and he was in court. And uh, the guy, the judge, you know, and and this did happen, you know, like the judge could have sentenced him. Uh, you know, to some prison time, to to some pretty severe prison time for that. But he said, you know, you look like a nice young man, you know, you've got a job, you know, I don't want to muck up your, the rest of your life. So we will work it out so that you can do a work release. You know, you'll spend most of your time in prison. When you're not in prison, you're at work and then you report back, right? You know, so he was given these opportunities. I'm not saying that that's easy to do necessarily, but, you know, there was he was not only very lucky and that he was able to talk himself out of a lot of things, but, you know, people just kind of took a look at him and just figured, you know, this guy is so harmless. Um, you know, he's just, you know, he's not going to hurt anybody. He wouldn't hurt a fly. And, uh, and they were so wrong.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the Netflix series, Dahmer. Uh, for listeners who want to learn more, I would highly recommend they check out your book called grilling Dahmer, the interrogation of the Milwaukee cannibal. That was uh, with Patrick Kennedy's notes, as you mentioned there, I'll make sure to add a link to your book in the show notes for this episode. But before I let you go, can you share something from your book that somebody who has only watched the Netflix series might not know about the true story?
1: Uh, well, there's two things I was going to mention that I thought that I find to be quite interesting about it. And they they didn't touch on them in the series, as far as I can remember. Um, well, the, the first of all, it, the first one was when he was in uh, Ohio and he was first pulled over with the police because his car was kind of swerving on the highway. Um, in the show, they show it with two police officers. It was actually only one police that pulled him over in real life. Um, so, but he pulled him over and he's like, you know, you were kind of swerving. Have you been drinking? Jeff says, oh, well, I had a couple of beers earlier. You know, what are you doing out here at this time of night? And he notices these garbage bags that contain body parts in them. But he notices these big garbage bags in the back. So he's kind of flashing his, you know, light on them. And what's that all about? And he's like, oh, well, you know, I was just going to take these to the dump. Then he starts with this, the sad story. You know, my parents are going through a divorce. My mom's really upset right now. I'm just trying to help her and kind of make her feel better by, you know, kind of clearing out some stuff that she'd been bugging me about to get to the dump. So, you know, the cop, I guess, could have done a little bit more there, but didn't. Just sort of took Dahmer at his word, took his license and just said to him, okay, I'm not going to write you a ticket. I'm just going to let you go. The dump is closed now because this was like at midnight. Um, so, and you can't leave these bags outside the gates. So you might as well just go home. So he sent him on his way. Okay, so flash forward now to Dahmer's caught in Milwaukee and he's with the cops there and he's sort of talking about the various crimes that he's committed. And he lets it out that, oh, well, you know, the very first guy I killed was actually in Ohio back when I was 19 years old. So he relays the story of the Stephen Hicks murder. So of course the police in Milwaukee say, well, we got to find out about this. So they phone Ohio Police Department and talk to a police officer there and say, okay, well, we'll send somebody out And we'll get the details and then we can look into it. So they bring a cop in from Ohio to Milwaukee uh, with these pictures of uh, people that are missing from around the same time that he's talking about, hoping that Dahmer can identify him. Well, lo and behold, it's the same police officer that came to Milwaukee that had pulled him over in Ohio. So this cop is sitting in the police (laughs) with the police in Milwaukee and he's looking at this guy. You know, it's like 13, 14 years later. And he's saying, you know, this story about this being pulled over and the garbage bags, this all sounds familiar. And he realizes I was the cop. I was the highway cop that pulled him over. So the cops afterwards, when he's telling.
0: Purely coincidental.
1: Absolutely. And he's, he's telling Patrick and Dennis and Murphy, the two police officers from Milwaukee who are investigating Dahmer the story. He says, I'm the one that pulled him over. So Murphy, uh, you know, slaps him on the back and says, man, you could have stopped this whole thing back then. And apparently this cop green, you know, and Pat said, no, 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 don't worry about it. He said, this guy, he could talk his way and lie. And I mean, he fooled a lot of people. So don't take it personally. Don't, you know, I mean, obviously the guy I'm sure felt guilty to some extent, but he said, don't worry about it. He said he was, he was a really, really good con man. So, you know, he was, he was able to fool a lot of people. So that was one. The other one was when I mentioned earlier about uh, uh, Dahmer living in Miami for a period of time after he was uh, sent home from the Army. Um, This time that he was in Miami um, happened to be at the same time that Adam Walsh uh, was abducted and murdered. Um, Adam Walsh, of course, being the son of John Walsh from America's Most Wanted. And in fact, that's why he got into that whole area, I think, of uh, law enforcement and crime busting was because of what happened to his own son, Adam Walsh. But um, when they captured uh, Dahmer and they had him um, in custody and they were saying, and they, of course, they found a head in Dahmer's um, fridge. And when Adam had been found, all they found of Adam was his head, his, his, he'd been decapitated. So they found his, his head. So as soon as they heard that and they realized, oh, my God, he had spent some time in Miami and it was around the same time that Adam was abducted. Uh, they thought maybe he was responsible for Adam uh, Walsh's abduction. So they sent pictures to the police and they said, you know, ask him about this little boy, Adam. So of course Dahmer looks at them and he says, well, that's a little kid. You know, I'm not interested in a little kid. And the police in Milwaukee said to him, well, don't forget about that 14-year-old boy and he reminded them. Well, I thought he was older. I didn't realize he was fourteen. I thought he was more like nineteen or twenty. But he said, "I'm not interested in little kids." But they, the um, people in uh, the police in Florida, they did actually send some police up because they wanted to talk to Dahmer about the Adam Walsh abduction. And of course, he denied it and said it wasn't. You know, I didn't have anything to do with that. And then many, many years later, they basically um, they figured out who they think did it, and they, that was Otis Tool, who was a serial killer as well.
0: Yeah, they didn't mention that at all. And it has, I mean, the, from, they didn't really show much from the investigation side of, you know, the police departments from other, other places coming in. There was, like I mentioned earlier, they did kind of cut back and forth between the interrogation there, but it was always kind of the same room and, and that, but yeah, I can imagine that I didn't think about it before, you know, him living in different places. That makes it even more complex of a, of a thing to try to figure out. Yes, um, yeah. Well, I, I, I love think... And can you even take Dahmer at his word for it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it it's pretty standard procedure. I think that when they do find a killer, like somebody who's killed a number of people, that they kind of go back in that person's history, really, really detailed. And they say, how where else has this person lived? Are there any other unsolved crimes similar to what we have found that this person does, like their MO? And, you know, they try and see if that they can close some cases based on because of this person's uh, li- li- living history, basically, where they lived.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Thank you again so much for your time, Robin. Thanks
1: very much, Dan. I'd love to be on your show.
0: This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Robin Maharaj once again for sharing her knowledge about the true story behind the Dahmer miniseries from Netflix. If you want to learn more about what really happened, go pick up a copy of her book authored with Patrick Kennedy called Grilling Dahmer, The Interrogation of the Milwaukee Cannibal. As always, I've got links to Robin's book in the show notes for this episode. But if you're driving or unable to get there right now, those links can always be found on the show's home on the web based on a true story Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, unlike what we see in the series, they did perform an autopsy on Jeffrey Dahmer's brain. Number two, Jeffrey Dahmer killed a bunch of animals before he killed any people. Number three. Although his nickname was the Milwaukee Cannibal, not all of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were killed in Milwaukee. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Unlike what we see in the series, they did perform an autopsy on Jeffrey Dahmer's brain. That's true. While we see Lionel Dahmer refusing to let his son's brain be autopsied in the series, in truth, it was Lionel who wanted to have Jeffrey's brain examined. It was actually Joyce who didn't want that to happen, but they did an autopsy on Jeffrey Dahmer's brain and found it to be completely healthy. Next up is number two. Jeffrey Dahmer killed a bunch of animals before he killed any people. That's the lie. As Robin explained, even though he did do taxidermy and experiments on dead animals, they were already dead. It was roadkill and already dead animals that he found, like we see in the series. That means number three is also true. Although his nickname was the Milwaukee Cannibal, not all of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were killed in Milwaukee. The series was correct to show that not all of Dahmer's victims were killed in Milwaukee. More specifically, Dahmer killed Stephen Hicks in Ohio. That was his first person that he killed. If this podcast was entertaining, if you found value in what you're listening to, if you like what I do and you'd like to give back, you can do that over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. And I'll chat with you again really soon.